0: Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald-Times in Bloomington, and today our topic is international admissions at Indiana University. Uh, Mary Catherine Carmichael cannot be with us today, but joining me in the studio is co-host Will Murphy, and we have one guest. Christopher Foley is the director of international admissions and the chief of operations for undergraduate admissions at Indiana University. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348 or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. Chris, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Sure. Thanks for being here. Will, thanks for sitting in today. It's my pleasure. Will's the professional. (laughs) Mary Catherine and I are are unprofessional or volunteers.
1: I I should be so unprofessional.
0: (laughs) So um, international admissions um, is – you know, IU is such a uh, sort of a, a diverse community when it comes to international students. I think when I go out and speak to people, I, I talk about how there are students here from 110 different nations. How close am I?
2: You're off uh, – you're a little low. We actually okay. have about 136 oh, countries okay. represented.
0: I have to rewrite my speeches.
2: That's All right. Um, <laughs> The uh, we have about thirty two hundred international students on campus. It makes us about the thirteenth largest international population in the United States. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, talk about um, if you would sort of how this came about. I mean, we you were talking a little bit before about Herman Wells uh, and you know his legacy, but there other presidents were involved as well.
2: Sure, I think that the the first uh, president that we had was President Jordan, who took students abroad. I think he took them to England uh, on a on an overseas study trip, but Internationalization at IU really uh, took off during the Herman Wells years. Not only was it for the international students, but also with just the outreach and the in, and the use of, you know, IU faculty to do development work and really uh, help build rebuild Europe in some ways and also just to help the United States uh, reach out to other countries in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, We really became a leader, I think, at that time, one of the the top institutions, and we've really tried to maintain that, Mm -hmm. uh, not only through international admissions, but as an institution. Mm -hmm.
0: And international admissions, uh, as we were talking before, the program is different from international programs, which is basically uh, students who study abroad and those kinds of programs, correct?
2: Um, They also deal with the faculty and with... uh, Uh, with scholars, things along those lines. They also work with the students once they, they are physically on campus. Um, one of the misconceptions, I think, and one of the good things about Indiana University, but one of the misconceptions about it is that there's just one place that deals with international students. Um, international students are really dealt with um, across many units on campus. Um, there's international admissions, international programs, international services, overseas study. You kind of get the gist. Not only that, but there's a, a great deal of commitment on the parts of the schools um, and also in the alumni, the foundation, to you know, serve these particular in- students, mm-hmm. and, and not only the students, but the faculty and the, the scholars, and yeah. things like that.
0: Now, I, I was looking at uh, you know, your um, background, and, and you specialize in education systems of the former Soviet Union. So how did you get you know, involved in that? And you were telling us before you're, you grew up in Arkansas? That's correct. So uh, how did you get from Arkansas to international programs?
2: It's um, a long yeah. story. Um, <laughs> I originally uh, came from uh, Fort Smith, Arkansas. I went to the University of Arkansas as an undergraduate, studied Russian studies, uh, people asked me why Russian. I thought, well, you know, it's an interesting language, so th- I think I'll take that. Um, then I came here to do graduate work. I actually did my graduate work in English and creative writing. Stayed uh, here afterwards because um, it's such a nice town and because I got, had a job in international admissions, yeah. mainly because uh, at that time I, I was still using my Russian. I was doing some translation work and stuff. So that that led me into this. Career in the admissions office, or just as an admissions officer, isn't one of those things people grow up saying, "Oh, I want to become an admissions <laughs> officer." Um, it's one of those things that once you become uh, affiliated, or you get used to working in a university, it's really a, a great job for some people. So you kind of run in, you, you kind of luck into it after a while. So mm-hmm. that's that's how I kind of lucked into it. I've really enjoyed it since then. Mm. So.
0: Okay. Our phone numbers are 855 0811, 877 and the email address is noon at indiana.edu.
2: Well,
1: what percentage of uh, international students are here on the Bloomington campus?
2: Overall, they make about eight to nine percent of the student body. Um, but I
1: mean, uh, are, there, are they also uh, going to Kokomo, Richmond, places like that, or is concentrated in Bloomington?
2: Um, the largest concentration, obviously, is in Bloomington campus. Um, IEPUI has has another sizable population. I think it's in the eight to nine hundred range. I, I don't want to quote th- their statistics for them, but I think that's that's pretty accurate. Once you get outside of those two campuses, other campuses do have particularly. I mean, they have significant populations, but not as large as ours.
1: And are most of those graduate or undergraduate?
2: Um, for the other campuses, I can't really say. For the Bloomington campus, most of them are going to be graduate. Overall, in the United States, that's tr- that's a trend. One thing that we are very happy with at Bloomington is we have more undergraduates. Uh, we have about a one-third, two-third split. So one-third are undergraduates. Two-thirds are, are graduates. Nationally, that's more like a one to uh, one to three, so you, you'd have 25 percent undergraduate and 75 percent graduate. So we're we're pleased to have uh, more undergraduates on our campus than would be nationally the trend.
0: Now, how are the the uh, the numbers trending? I mean, I, I know we'll we'll get into a lot of the changes since September 11th, but uh, just in general, are the numbers up, down, about the same as they were?
2: Well, we we saw our banner year was I believe two thousand two, and at that point we were really seeing a large number of students. We'd be, we'd seen the train, trends going up, and you notice that two thousand two was actually after mm-hmm. you know nine eleven, but we think that really the impacts of nine eleven didn't happen until after that. We'll talk about that maybe a little bit later. But since that time, we took a big drop, and then we're seeing that. Rebound. There are a couple of things that are really impacting international um, enrollments in the United States. One is, of course, 9-11 and sort of the repercussions of that national um, national image and some of the, the visa uh, situations, though those are definitely getting better. The other things that are happening uh, are revolve around other countries actually recruiting international students as well. So countries like Australia, New Zealand, England, uh, Canada, they're all reaching out to international students. Australia as a whole recruits international students as part of their tourism industry so they have a national you know push to bring international students into their educational system the united states does not have that and so as a result the us education is not becoming uh, is kind of losing out in market share i guess you mm-hmm. you might say mm-hmm. um still all in all the trends are are going back up i think part of that is people are more uh, interested in studying in the United States, we still have a very good educational system post uh, secondarily and uh, you know that that 's hard to compete with i mean qu- students really want quality, especially international students i think the um, The other things that are happening is uh, really revolve around. Uh, I think the U.S. is becoming to, is beginning to understand, and particularly institutions are beginning to understand, that they really want international students. IU has always been ahead of the curve on that, but I think other institutions are beginning to come to that realization at a, at a faster rate as mm-hmm. well. So that's helping the rebound. Also, just students are—they're are, more mobile globally now than they ever have been. So the, the number of students studying outside of their home country—so, uh, for instance, the students that Aren't live in one country but they want to study somewhere else. That number is growing overall. So not only uh, do we have more competitors but the number of students that would be interested in coming to another country is growing. So the number of possible recruits for instance uh, there are more of them to go around so maybe that's helping us rebound mm-hmm. a little bit. Okay. We, we have a phone call.
0: So we're going to go to the okay. phone first and uh, we'll go to Bob first. Bob, Bob go ahead.
3: Yes. Um I've had several uh, Fulbrights abroad, and um, generally, when I've uh, been in these countries, um, a lot of the institutions, or several of the institutions, come to me and ask me, you know, how to get uh, their students into uh, uh, in in Indiana University. And uh, I've um, I've not really had any su- su- success in uh, in uh, getting students here, partly because of the high medical costs, uh, the medical insurance that is required. Also, because the um, uh, st- uh, the State Department requires uh, at, at least at that time twenty thousand dollars that the student had to show that they had uh, in order to be here for for a year, and this was very difficult for uh, students in, in uh, Hungary um, when it was still on soft money there, and uh, nobody could afford twenty thousand uh, dollars. But the main the 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 main thing was. Uh, that um, even when you had a uh, sort of a fair trade whereas the students here in this country would pay their tuition but then go to Hungary and have their um, education, and then the students from Hungary would come here uh, and the, um, the difference would cancel out, it was still a problem of medical insurance. And uh, this was the big hang-up here at IU. And finally, uh, I turned to the University of of Illinois, and was able to get uh, students from Hungary and Finland, another place I've been, uh, and Germany into into the University of Illinois in Chicago. So there seemed to be uh, less interest in Indiana uh, to to do some bending or to uh, try to figure out ways to uh, help to deal with this medical insurance that um, was uh, was required for uh, foreign students.
2: Sure. Sure. I I I can certainly sympathize with you. I um, one of the things about um, getting students into the United States uh, that that can be frustrated is the high cost. The the United States education as a whole uh, is very expensive right now. That twenty thousand dollars that you mentioned actually students now have to provide about a thirty five thousand dollar proof that they have about thirty five thousand dollars. That's only going to go up. That's um, unusual, especially when you talk about something like a country like Hungary where they come from a system where, you know, for the most part, those those costs, those educational costs are free. Um, mm-hmm. If you get into right. college or if you get into university, the, the state pays for it. That's not the model in the United States. And right. one of the biggest issues that we have is we do have a lot of students, particularly from those countries that are very well qualified, but just they don't have the means to come to the United States. Unfortunately uh, for them um, and for Indiana University, but I don't think we're alone in this, um, that's, that's just a reality. That would be the reality for U.S. students as well. I mean we expect U.S. students, though they can get federal financial aid, we would also expect U.S. students to pay a significant amount of money, uh, which I think is is a growing concern in the United States as well. So that's that's just an element of the of the U.S. educational system. As far as the the medical costs, medical insurance, and these are federal guidelines, by the way. You, uh, in order to bring a student into the United States who is not a citizen of the United States or a permanent resident, they have to show that they have the means to support themselves while they are here. Part of that not only is just the cost of tuition and room and board, but also uh, medical insurance. About Right now, I think the medical insurance is about nine hundred to a thousand dollars that they have to show. I don't know what the case was when you were trying to bring them uh, here um, from Hungary. Uh, when it's you were probably
3: about that much, and, and but uh, they did say that the Hungarian students could work on campus, but of course campus salaries were so That's... were so low that. Uh...
2: And unfortunately, the uh, the way we read the guidelines, we can't really take anticipated income into the uh, that uh, that financial need portion. So, I mean, we understand that we do. We have done a lot of work recently with uh, international students and in financial aid. Um, one of the things that we were able to do, especially after the federal government started instituting a system called SEVIS, and they which made them students have to pay more money just to have an interview to come into the United States, Uh, this can be an obstacle. So we kind of recognize that. And right now with undergraduates, every undergraduate who is a non-resident, who is an international student, um, if they're admitted um, by the the first part of the summer, receives about $1,000 a year. Um, to help compensate some, you know offset yeah. some of those costs we, same thing for transfers on the graduate side they 've also done that they, they do reimburse those fees, so uh, for admitted graduate students so we've we 've done some work to do that Hello. you you're, you're, You mentioned about University of Illinois and University of Chicago. Yeah. one of the things that that really can be good for the students but you know bad for the particular programs is you know Schools can do things differently. In the United States, we're very autonomous at, at, at the post-secondary level. And so what we might not be able to do at Indiana University, they might be able to do it at the University of Illinois. Um, you know, just to kind of speak up a little bit for Indiana, um, we do – we have the same thing happening on the other side. So we have students that aren't able to go certain other places, but they do end up coming here. But, I mean, those are the kinds of challenges that we work with on a day-to-day basis, and we really do try to resolve them. I certainly appreciate your concerns. Well, Uh,
3: Illinois was very creative in uh, bringing this graduate student, uh, because they used, um, they gave her an an assistantship, and then also they used the money, uh, because of her assistantship, she didn't have to pay tuition. So that was added, and then she got some money from the Shores Foundation for medical for the first year in travel, uh, and uh, then they gave her, well, she had the assistantship, so she had some money. So by cobbling this all together, we were able to reach 20000
2: Yeah. So. Well, uh, I can sympathize. We've done the same thing for some students. I can't answer for the particular ones that you worked with, but. You know, we, we do have those assistantships available for, for qualified students yeah. here. So yeah. hopefully, it's better now than it was back then.
3: And the Finnish students have had a lot of problem getting into the United States with the with the interviews, and then also with the um, uh, the um, embassy uh, there and and uh, uh, DL, DLAing tactics and things like that. So that it's been very difficult. So they generally go elsewhere. Um. So that's another problem that
2: they have. Yeah, we, we have seen that in more than just one country. But we do f- kind of feel that, that that issue is getting a little bit better. The State Department's done a lot to really help uh, move those uh, visa interviews along post uh, – in the last year or two. Unfortunately, the perception is still there. Yeah. So, you know, students still feel that no matter what the reality is, that they're basing their experience upon, you know, three to four years ago when – I mean, it was really – unfortunate. Right, uh, right. And this so. is
3: when I was in Finland and working hard to bring in some students because they really wanted to come to Indiana University but then had to change and switch to other places.
2: Yep.
0: All right, Bob, thanks a lot for your call. You're welcome. alright eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and noon at indiana.edu. I think the one of the messages from you know, Bob's calls it. You know, it's it's complicated. Every student that comes here has a different set of circumstances and you know different skills and different means. And I'm sure that you have to work to try to you know do all sorts of things.
2: My job is never boring, and it's <laughs> one of the things that I really like about it. I should say that it's uh, you know the, I should compliment my staff. We do have an excellent staff at, in, in the international admissions office, and, and they are. Uh, very dedicated to trying to help students get through all of these processes that go through not only our admissions process but the whole visa issuance process Mm -hmm. is it can be um cumbersome yeah well how how, go ahead
0: will
1: i I was just going to ask a follow-up uh something you mentioned uh, in response to bob's comment and that is the sevis process Uh, when when the federal government first introduced that there was a lot of screaming across the country about uh, the paperwork that that would cause for universities, the sort of compromising of sensitive or confidential material for students coming into the system. How has that worked out? Has it uh, evened out or, think, or is there a, a detente in that process now?
2: Well, I think I think we're getting to a detente and I think we're actually seeing uh, uh, it really even out quite a bit. When And it it would be – Wrong to say that CVis was uh, a repercussion strictly of 9-11. There, there had been plans prior to 9-11 to actually implement some sort of a uh, student visa uh, tracking database. It had been really slowed down. Uh, 9-11 put it on the on the fast track, and it put it on the really fast fast track. Um, when you implement technology uh, too fast, it, it comes in it's – a, it's a very rocky landing, and I would say that CVis uh, came in um, – very, very, in a, in a very difficult way, um, for our office, for the Office of International Services. I should say that the Office of International Services at IU led the led us through that process. They did a fabulous job. They've got some really, uh, they've really done some some cutting edge work on helping us maneuver through um, SEVIS and these requirements. We we definitely take their lead, take our lead from them, but. Um, we saw that the first year it was really difficult. That was our banner year too. So when you have a bad, uh, bad uh, implementation of technology, then you turn around and have a whole lot of applications you're trying to get into the system. It's very difficult. Since that time, especially with the help of the software and the and the lead that International Services has um, has provided, I would say we're back to definitely pre nine eleven kind of a a turnaround time on applications, getting things in, getting things out. Things are a little bit easier um, now. Um, I think we do have, we've really, it's forced the university to take what was a very paper-based process and turn it into a technically savvy process. So that means our reporting, we can stay on top of things a lot better. We can do a lot of things um, much more efficiently than we did in the past. And I, I do think that that's really helped us out. The the problems with CVis, um, you know i think there were you know there there was some it had a bad perception amongst international students too suddenly we were tracking every student that was coming into the united states this is a very small portion of the of the international people that come into the into the us i think it's well under 5% it could be down around 2% so they felt like they were being picked on in some ways not only that but um you know then there was biometrics that they added, so everybody was being fingerprinted and eye scanned things it, it felt very uh, big brotherish, I think to these other countries and in uh, in many other countries, you know they haven 't had good experiences with you know situations where the government is watching them all the time and so I think that the public relations issues around SEVIS were were very difficult there's also a financial burden that was added. Um, students suddenly had to pay a hundred dollars for their interviews to get a visa. And then they also had to pay another $100 to, to get, uh, get processed through the SEVIS system. And that was very difficult. $100, are, and now you're talking about $200 because that's mm-hmm. uh, for the visa interview. $200 in another country is significant. And given that most of our students are graduate students and they come in on those assistantships, they don't have a lot of extra money just laying around. 200 students to a Chinese student could be – you know, a month, uh, month's pay could be very significant, and so CVis really added a few obstacles that we had to work with um, to try to, you know, help retain our our, our appeal to international students. But I'd say that it's, it's getting a little better. I mean, definitely we're surviving, and I think we're going to bring in one of the largest uh, classes of international students we've we've seen on campus.
0: You have said that I mean, you said that CVis wasn't um, necessarily because of nine eleven, but it was fast tracked because of that. But what are some of the um, obstacles that came up after, you know, that attack, the 9-11 attack?
2: Well, I think immediately um, the, the the government perception of the international student, just of the international person, uh, was, was very difficult. I mean, I, I think it—and I, I, there's still that lingering concept that the international student is not always up and up. But, you know, Especially in education, it's. I, w- I would say that one of our biggest um, foreign policy um, pushes is, you know, building f- good relationships with other countries, and and through programs like Fulbright and uh, Muskies and things like that, and just through students coming here and studying, we really build friends around the world. And and I think people kind of forgot that uh, for a little while. Um, it really it brought it was brought home to me when I realized that. At one point in a in a middle Eastern country that i 'm drawing a blank on, um, I think it was Kuwait or Saudi Arabia itself, we had five to seven ministers educated by indiana university alone these These are top level cabinet level you know uh, positions in that country mm-hmm. that 's a really good way to build a, a relationship country to country, let alone institution to country. but I think people forgot that and uh, for many good reasons don 't get me wrong. I mean I th- that was a very difficult time for the United States, but that was one thing. The other thing is that um, I think uh, I think other countries began to have a very different view of what the United States was that we weren 't welcoming Suddenly, we were making people give us their fingerprints and their eye scans, and they were we were making them um, entering their names into a database and, and they thought that, we th- that they thought that we thought that they were all. Bad people, which was not true. I've never seen a more welcoming uh, environment to international students than in some of the stuff that went on on our campus and other campuses around the United States. But it took a while for that that to kind of go away. Mm-hmm. The financial burdens we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. I think that kind of got a little bit. Um, that, I mean, that definitely added what seemed insignificant to us, but but was more insignificant was more significant to the other other students. Um, that, that really made it difficult to get applications and, and to show people that we really wanted to be here. It kind of played into the Australians and the, and the, the British hands, you know, mm-hmm. and now they became even more welcoming than, than we were and that, mm-hmm. that did not help. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. We're going to – we've had break time. We've got a call on the phone. We have an email, but we're going to wait till after the break to get to those. So you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about international admissions here at Indiana University with Chris Foley. We'll be right back.
4: www.southdunnstreet.info. WFIU is the media sponsor for the 8th Annual Juneteenth Celebration. Juneteenth celebrating African American freedom while encouraging self-development and respect for all cultures. The parade starts Saturday morning at 10 at the Neal Marshall Black Culture Center. Ends at Bryan Park with activities continuing until 4 in the afternoon with songs, multicultural and information booths, food vendors, arts and crafts, and more. More information about this and many other events on the WFIU website, wfiu.indiana.edu.
0: Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times along with Will Murphy, and we have one guest today. Chris Foley is the Director of International Admissions and the Chief of of Operations for Undergraduate Admissions at IU. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348, or you can send your email to noon at indiana.edu. And as I said before uh, the break, we have a phone call from Mike. Mike, go ahead.
2: Yes, uh, I have a question for Chris. Um, uh, up until, uh, a couple years ago, um, the deadline for international applicants, at least for the graduate program, was, you know, sort of significantly earlier at IU than it was at other Big Ten institutions. I don't remember the exact dates for the deadlines, but i my questions are, has that changed recently? And, um, uh, if, if not, is there a reason why the deadline at Indiana University is significantly earlier than for other Big Ten institutions? Sure, I think I've, I've got a. Uh, i have got think I've got a, a couple of good reasons why that that's the case. With international students, um, we there are two extra elements to the the application process that a, a domestic student doesn't have to go through. The first is the evaluation of the credentials. So if a student comes to us from Russia and they have a diploma. Uh, and, uh, we have to take a look at their um, academic records, uh, which would include the de- diploma degree, which is just a diploma, and then also what they call a prelogenic diploma, which is an um, attachment to the diploma. It looks like a transcript. We have to take those and then evaluate those and see if they are uh, – what they would be equivalent to in the United States. So whether or not they're a US bachelor's degree, whether or not they're a high school diploma, whether or not they'd even be a doctorate sometimes. Um, That takes a little time. The uh, other part of the application process is actually getting their visa paperwork done. In the admissions office at IU, we do that. um, And so we want to make sure that international students have plenty of time to get that part done because with the international students, they not only have to be admitted by the department, but then they have to show enough money to um, prove that they can – meet the visa requirements, as we talked about earlier in the program, then they have to take the documents we issue to the consulate or the embassy in their home country, set up an interview that can take a month, and then they have to go have their interview. If they are denied, then they have to go through that process again. So you can see that we're tacking months on at each time they get denied a visa. For Chinese students, that can be two to three times pretty easily. Um, for other countries it's it's much easier but we want to give students as much time on that back end to to make sure that they can get through the process. Now, as far as the credentials evaluation, we receive about 7,000 applications a year through international admissions, between 6,500 and 7,000. A lot of those arrive on the same day. So, uh, just trying to get through them all can be a can be a pretty difficult issue and then we have to get those off to the departments. Most of the time, the reason why we have the deadlines earlier is to give us time to get the work done to get them out to the departments. I think they're now, I think we have a December 1st, but in most cases they're December 15th. We allow the departments to actually set most of those um, those deadlines and they can be hard or soft deadlines. So if a student applies after that, we, can, we oftentimes still send the application to the department a lot, unless they've told us to stop sending them. We've tried to move those up. Right after September 11th, we were so – we had so much work to do and really had a lot of problems. Um, we wanted to make sure we gave students enough time because the last thing we wanted to do is have a student apply by the deadline and not get that application to the department in time for them to consider it. So we moved those deadlines back, but we are working at moving those back up so that you know we, we don't have to be um, – we don't have to have students apply so much earlier than other institutions. I have also seen that, that the trend is happening that other institutions are moving those deadlines back as well because I see some of the same issues. Um, the worst thing that can happen to me in my opinion is uh, a department admits a student but that student not have enough time. At a certain point, if if departments not or if we as an institution, I shouldn't just say you know the departments, but if we as an institution I haven't admitted a student by say April, um, may, we may just be consigning that student to not coming to IU no matter how impressive their credentials were. They just can't get through the process. So I'd much rather err on the, on the, on the side of making sure that these students can get through the process and have their decisions made early than to um, not be able to process their applications in time.
0: All right. All right, Mike. Okay. Thanks a lot for the call. 855 877-285-9348, and noon at indiana.edu.
1: We have a couple of uh, email questions here. The first uh, is from a colleague of yours who's forwarding an email. This person says, I've worked with Chris for years, and he's great. Thanks for having him on the show. Today we received the following email from an admitted student. I'd ask Chris to comment on how common this issue is. And the note reads, I wrote to international admissions several days ago. I didn't get the visa for the second time. I was astonished that after I showed all the documents to the visa officer, he thought me a liar. He even thought I had relatives in the U.S. Actually, I have no friends in the U.S. It hurts my feelings a lot. I try all my best and wait for a year to pursue a master's degree. How did an officer of a country with liberty and democracy give such a conclusion to me?
2: I, I believe I saw that email earlier in the day and I appreciate the comments. Um, I should also say that it's reciprocal. I, I think many of the departments we work with, this one in particular, is, is very helpful to us um, and great at getting students to the, uni- to, to the university and they do a great job. So um, we work in partnerships, not not alone here and uh, we can't succeed without that. I think that students from China and China poses an interesting issue. Um, let me talk a little bit about the visa process. The Applying for a visa, uh, when, a, when a person comes in to apply for a visa, they have to show that they don't have an intention to immigrate. So if they're coming for a student visa, I should say, they have to, sh- they have to demonstrate that they, they will not be staying on after they complete their degree. This means that in that interview, when they have that interview with the consulate official, it's the student's burden to demonstrate that they are, that they are going to be returning home. If that student is Chinese, which I believe they are, there's there's a couple of other issues that are going on in that those particular consulates and embassies. They have so many interviews in those particular um, uh, consulates and embassies that they have to make decisions within minutes because those interviews, they have so many that the consulate officials only have about five minutes, maybe even less, to make a decision about a, a visa. That means that they pretty much are are going to make the assumption that the students are going to immigrate. If the student doesn't show anything, any um, does, doesn't basically counter that argument, then the default is that student will not get the the, the visa. They there are certain things that students should do in order to, to demonstrate that they should show ties back to the home country. They should make sure that the student that they don't say things like, "Well, I hope to get a job and stay in the United States." Um, it, because that's, that's really not um, going to get them their their um, visa. The other thing that's happening specifically with China is that just in general, the last statistics I saw is about two out of every three, if not— or three out of every four Chinese students don't actually return home after they complete their degree. So there there's—all there, of the people that have gotten visas beforehand have kind of uh, can, created this image that Chinese students are not going to return home. And so there's a really— they have to show – they have to do even more work to demonstrate that. That's not the case in all other countries. Um, unfortunately, that that's a problem. We're seeing that not, not as common as we used to. But, I mean, with Chinese students in particular, um, we see it much more in other countries. And, but I'd say that it's getting somewhat better. Um, but still, it's, it, it's an issue of staffing on the part of, uh, of the consulates and embassies. It's, it's an issue of sort of historical trends with Chinese students in particular. It's also um, got to do a little bit with just that default that they assume that the student is going to immigrate. So, okay.
1: We have a second email here. Other than keeping enrollment full, can you list some of the advantages for IU and the Bloomington community of international students being here?
2: Sure. Um, well, I'd like to say that um, for the most part when I'm in conversations about international students, uh, we, we very rarely talk about um, them as – you know, tuition dollars. I get a lot of questions. Well, aren't we just another source of, uh, you know, money for the university? And, you know, I can say you're about the same as any other student uh, in at IU. So as far as conversations about money or anything like that, we really see international students as a source of diversity in a lot of ways. Um, we believe that is it's integral to, to IU as a whole. Herman Wells, going back to him, he thought that, you know, we can't make every in Indiana – Student um, go abroad, but we can bring the abroad ha- here to Indiana, and you know we really do that through the international student population with those 136 different countries represented. You can interact a lot with uh, with with a lot of different cultures. The they are high ability students in a lot of ways. Uh, they are excellent um, in the classroom. They have high retention rates. They have high GP first. Term GPAs, they tend to have good SAT scores. Um, they have their education is is phenomenal. So, uh, in most cases, the students that are coming to the United States are coming from very good schools. They they're they're some of the best in their countries, and they're really you know they're go getters in, in a lot of ways. You know, you don't decide to pick up from your home country and travel across an ocean if you don't have a certain amount of you know. Um, uh, uh, of drive, you know, if you don't have a certain willingness to really, you know, be engaged in that other community. And so I, I really think that w- we see those elements coming through with the with the international students. They go home and they, they do great things. Um, you know, some of our, our uh, some of the alumni internationally are really, really phenomenal. Uh, they've done some great stuff. I've already mentioned that some, they become ministers, they become leaders of their own country. The deputy um, the deputy minister of education in Kazakhstan, for instance, is an IU grad. Um, he's not I don't think he's even 30 yet, and he, he's in that position. So you see them really uh, take on some fantastic roles. Um, you know, those are two really important elements that I think um, really add to this campus and make it unique. Um, at the graduate level, you know, some of our departments are very dependent upon them for their grants and for AI ships. I mean you, you can only get so many French teachers who are U.S. citizens. You know, you can only get – in this environment, you can only get so many students who are interested in physics that are U.S. citizens in order to get your labs uh, to keep operational uh, – to keep your labs operational to get grants and things like that. International students are are some of the best sources of uh, to to help us out in that, and so for re, they're integral to research and, and the teaching mission of the university. So, it, it very rarely comes down to just enrollments for us.
0: We have about fifteen minutes to go. The phone numbers are eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. And the email address is noon at indiana dot edu do you, uh, how do you deal with the language issues? Do uh, all the students who are enrolled already speak English or are there um, courses are, are there English training courses that students seem to take when they arrive?
2: We do have an uh, ESL program uh, on campus the um, The intensive English program has been here for years, and they do a fantastic job. Um, they bring students here just to learn English. So if a student just wants to come to the United States and, and learn English, they can do that at in Indiana University. If a student, we admit students who do not necessarily meet, you know, English uh, proficiency requirements. Every student that comes to the, to Indiana University has to demonstrate that they've got the English proficiency. Usually, that's through um, on on campus examination. So we we actually. Review them once they get here, if they don't perform at a certain level, then we will refer them either to part time or full time English language training um, for associate instructors for those that are going to actually teach in a classroom that level that expected level of, of proficiency is even higher, so uh, they they have to do that the for again for the visa um, to to obtain a visa. There is the requirement that students have to demonstrate that they've met the English requirement. So if we will indicate whether or not they've already met that need at the time of application or we will say that that will be assessed on campus and then they, they get here and they test. Mm-hmm. Most of the time we haven't well, – we, we certainly do get students that don't have the necessary English proficiency and sometimes that's a surprise to them, um, you know, that they that they don't. Um, there are tests. There's call there's a test called the TOEFL, very very similar to the the SAT in the way it's administered. Um, test of English as a Foreign Language, you know, and if you perform at a certain level, that kind of in, is a general indicator that you you speak English well enough to do, to perform in the United States. But you still get students that don't perform well on that, and they're still shocked that they have to have some mm-hmm. some English uh, backup. But that's not um, that's really not uh, That's not the, the rule, I would say. Yeah.
0: Okay, we have a phone call. Norma, go ahead.
3: Hi, thank, thank you. I was just listening to the program and the previous question. Um, I'm trying to get the radio turned down. I think the question was, what good is it for us And to have all these international students? And I think one of them is it's wonderful for our education for the whole world. For their country, for our different people, their their culture, that's the main thing. And I also wanted to say that there are several places, uh, organizations in Bloomington, including the Vital Program at Monroe County Library, that helps with the English proficiency. Mm-hmm. That's all.
2: All right. Thanks a lot, Norman. I would I would definitely echo that. I mean, I, I think that the that us, one of the benefits is. Uh, really twofold. I mean, not only are we educating these students and they get to benefit from it, but we in the United States as a whole really gets to benefit. I I think Kofi Annan, I mean, Secretary General of the UN was was a student in the United States. You could probably go down a big, long list and say who's all been a a student in the United States. Um, Other programs, one in particular that we work with a lot is the Bloomington Worldwide Friendship, which is a um, non, it's not affiliated with the university, but they they are uh, an association of of people in the community who are very welcoming to our students. They've been around for years and they've just done a fabulous job of supporting the students that come in. Mm-hmm. So it's not just, I mean, it's not just Indiana University that's welcoming. I mean, the city of Bloomington does a very nice job uh, mm-hmm. of, of welcoming these students.
0: Yeah, I have to say my wife and I have been, uh, had three different students through the Worldwide Friendship Program. And anybody that has any interest in that, I'd, I'd highly recommend it because, uh, you know, you meet People and learn a lot about different cultures, and it's uh, it's very interesting. One of our yeah. students didn't make that English proficiency. That was part of my question. <laughs> a Japanese student who yeah. then went to Australia to to study. continue on. Yes, there you right, go. Right,
1: right. Well, uh, I'm curious about the uh, function of of word of mouth. I mean, clearly your department is going to do some recruiting uh, at other uh, in other countries. I would assume there's a word-of-mouth effect. I assume alumni clubs to some degree help you recruit. I know that next, uh, next month the provost is going uh, to China. Are you expecting to see a, a burst of applications following that visit? We certainly hope
2: so. Um, I would say prior to this year we really relied on that word-of-mouth. I think that um, the reputation of Indiana University really is um, the reason why we've had such a large – international student population. Um, people know it's a great institution. We're nationally la- ranked. We're actually internationally ranked. There are there are international rankings of, of universities. And so um, they know that we're a good school. We have a large alumni uh, population base a- around the United States, not only of true international students, those who are not U.S. citizens or permanent residents, but also of U.S. citizens who are living abroad. And they are some, I mean, I have to say uh, alumni have done a great job. They help us host yield events and things like that as well. Um, We're really hoping to build upon that and I think that uh, this last year we saw an increase in in, uh, funding for international recruitment. It was a a modest uh, investment but it was a critical investment. We were able to hire an international recruiter. Um, we were able to send her abroad. Um, we were able to publish publications specifically for international students that had that had never really happened, other than just the applications. we were able to increase our advertising. Um, we're hoping to to be able to use um, you know the the provost visit as well as other visits as springboards for for even better um, recruitment initiatives. And so we've really seen the campus uh, this this last year um, step up and say, well, word of mouth was great. Uh, It's really got us where we we are, but we can't rely on that anymore. And once again, this isn't a trend that's just with IU. When I received that funding for the department and and I I was excited, I thought we were going to be on the cutting edge. Then I turned around and saw in the listserves for all of our competitors where they were hiring international recruiters. They were expanding their recruitment. Basically, they're going through a lot of the same, you know, mindset changes that we are. So I, th- I think that it's critical for us to continue to build on that stuff, um, those those additional um, initiatives. If we're going to continue to, to stay as prestigious as we are in this area. If
1: I could ask a follow-up sure question. Is. I just uh, I, come, I came from New Mexico to go to IU and I had a bit of culture shock. I mean, I couldn't understand why all these people kept calling me Hun. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> if you've got somebody who's raised in a particular culture and they come here and suddenly they're in the middle of cornfields and NASCAR, uh, I know that, that, that at least technically your affiliation with these folks ends uh, when they become actual people, as you say. Mm-hmm. But how do you help Folks integrate into what must be in many cases a radically different environment
2: well, and I you know that 's one of the things I mean working for Indiana University as an admissions officer is a really easy job because we do such a good job, not just in the admissions office but as an institution as a whole and you know i don 't have any problems going to international students saying we are we really offer you one of the best experiences you can have, and that 's because of other units on campus, international services, for instance, is a great job working with the visa process and offering programming, coordinating um, student groups, we have 136 different countries, probably the majority of those have their own student group. And those student groups then turn around and participate in the welcoming process. So they are sending out emails to prospective students to help them help prepare them for that culture shock. We have things like the Bloomington Worldwide Friendship, where, you know, not only do their own citizens welcome them? But then we've got our own community uh, welcoming them as well. The, you know, we have a a broad variety of academic support um, initiatives that are available to not only international students, but also, you know, for students as a whole. You know, uh, we were, uh, Indiana University was commended for its first year experience several years ago. And, you know, that doesn't apply just to the U.S. students. That applies to to everybody. And I think for the international students, it just gets even better because we really have a very compassionate um, campus and, and a lot of resources for them that I don't think you'll find in other, uh, in other areas uh, to, to that extent. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the uh, program Destination Indiana, could you explain what that is?
2: Sure. Um, that was a consortium that was developed a few years ago of Indiana schools. Basically, the concept was that we wanted to try to um, market indiana education, so Indiana, the state of Indiana as a destination for international recruitment um, we thought it it wouldn 't replace what we already do that that just doesn't that wouldn 't make sense but it would be a nice compliment that if a student were interested in studying in this region that at least there would be an entity out there where they could do it we do we do um we do some collaborative efforts we 've uh the the Indiana destination Indiana has traveled as a group so you know um Purdue IEPUI, Ball State um Southern Indiana all these they've they've done a road show we've gone to visit um US embassy or uh international embassies in Washington DC this last year I thought we were pretty clever I thought and, and I was really excited about this I, I can't claim any credit for it except that some of our staff participated in it they um they did virtual um fairs so we linked with educational centers around the world, mainly in this case, it was in the Middle East. And the students went to the international center in their country called an overseas advising center. And then virtually, we had a representative from our um, from our office actually talking to them, telling about them studying in the United States and how to come to Indiana University. I thought that was very exciting because, you know, technology has really changed our world. It used to be that, you know, a letter to India took four to six weeks. Now an Indian student can contact us, you know, every second, which Mm -hmm. some of them do. (laughs) Uh, But, um, you know, so that's been really exciting. This last uh, spring, Candice Progler, our our assistant director for international recruitment, helped coordinate bringing three of those advisors from those centers to Bloomington. They were from Kazakhstan, Thailand, and Jordan. And they got to really have an in-depth experience. So when they go back home, and we've done this for for several years, when they go back home, they will be able to talk firsthand about, you know, Indiana University. And, you know, we know not only from our work with international students, but for domestic students, getting people here, whether or not they're students or, you know, high school teachers or high school counselors or, you know, representatives of, of, of scholarship programs or something like that, getting them to our campus is key once they see indiana university it's a very very easy thing for them to promote um wherever they are they love the campus i mean it's it's fantastic and so anything we can do to to do that was is important now we've got these people you know in kazakhstan thailand uh um, and Jordan, who have seen the campus, and they're really excited. That hopefully they'll be as excited about it as as we are, mm-hmm. and and be able to tell students about what we have to offer. Mm-hmm.
0: So uh, we've just got a couple of minutes uh, left to go. The the uh, coalition of of schools from around the state. How o- how often do you meet? Is there a governing board? Do you have? Uh, you know, it rotates
2: or... up until this point. It's really been um, Ball State took the lead on it and and has been helping out uh, with it. Although. Um, former director of international services, Ken Rogers, at Indiana University was very instrumental in in, in helping uh, promote it as well. Right now, the leadership is out of the uh, University of Southern Indiana, uh, Heidi Gregorian, um, mm-hmm. and um, she has... She's taken over that leadership. We meet probably once every quarter, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. it, it kind of varies depending upon what we have going on, but we definitely try to have some sort of a recruitment event in the fall and in the in the mm-hmm. in the spring.
0: Okay, and just the last thirty seconds: Are there parts of the world that you're starting to see more and more students come, in, and are there other parts of the world where you used to find a lot of students that you're not seeing?
2: Anymore? Sure. To, um our where we've always seen students is from the uh, East Asia, so India and. China and uh, Japan, Korea, Taiwan, uh, Hong Kong, um, Canada is the outlier on that. But mm-hmm. those are our top five, pretty much. The new areas, you know, we we've we have some initiatives with Kazakhstan um, where they are funding a lot more uh, students to come to the United States. And then also we've seen a lot of interest from Saudi Arabia mm-hmm. um, because there are funding opportunities for students from their country to come to the United States. So those are those are our two big interests. We'd like to also uh, rebuild parts of the Middle East and um, I think uh, Latin America is intriguing. I'm not sure. Um, if it will be the, a booming market for us. But I, I think it will be an interesting uh, all right. endeavor.
0: All right, Chris. Well, Chris Foley has been our guest. I want to thank you and, and for all you do. I, I would say international – the international students make a lot of difference here in Bloomington. So
2: They certainly yeah. do. Thank you for right. having me.
0: Thanks a lot. For Will Murphy, producer producers Claire Deedee and Catherine Hegeman and engineer Mike, Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening.
4: Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald-Times.